The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And you are listening to Sound On. Earlier today, I was at the State Department and I spoke for an exclusive television and radio interview with the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs, Keith Kroc. And I asked him point blank about the importance that the administration feels on diversifying the supply chain from China. Take a listen to what he told me. It's critical to diversify uh, that supply chain, and I think we're seeing that right now uh, with the pandemic. And so this is an effort that we've been doing for the last couple of years, and now it's uh, being turbocharged because of that uh, pandemic. And, and I think it's re- a lot of it's brought on by um, citizens around the world realizing some of the things that's going on with the Communist Party uh, of China. And I think the president did a great job of waking up the United States, but I think everybody sees China's, uh, you know, what I would affectionately call uh, their three-pronged strategy of uh, concealment, co-option, and and coercion. So if you look at the virus, uh, the pandemic is a result of the concealment of that virus. Um, if you look at their face masks, their so-called face mask diplomacy, um, where uh, they are seducing, uh, coercing countries to do things and using that PPE as collateral. And then the third thing is, I think people have woken up and they see that uh, China has a, uh, co-opted a lot of the economies by entangling uh, supply chains. So it's it's critical for, for national security as well as economic security. Let me follow up on that face mask diplomacy. Are you concerned that China might be dangling PPE to our U.S. allies uh, to, to really try to get them to get even more entangled in 5G network? By the way, I think we're seeing that uh, around the world. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a classic part of their three-pronged strategy. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think understanding uh, the dangers of uh, uh, 5G from an, untrusted, uh, from an untrusted vendor. And Secretary Pompeo announced on April 29th uh, the Clean Path program, which basically calls for any network traffic coming in and out of uh, diplomatic facilities, whether it's here or abroad, all our embassies, uh, it requires a clean path. So in other words, it's trusted, it's reliable, it cannot have touched, for example, a Huawei antenna. And, uh, and, and we expect uh, other countries and companies uh, to make those same requirements. Before we come back to domestic politics, sticking with international, this economic prosperity network, how important is that that the U.S. develop that, not just uh, with U.S.-based companies, but also internationally? Yeah. So, so if you look at the economic prosperity network, uh, it's core to our economic security strategy. There's three pillars in that. The first one is turbocharge uh, economic competitiveness. The second is safeguard America's assets. The third one is the economic pr- prosperity network. And what that means is that means forming uh, uh, an alliance 
a network with trusted partners. And so the Economic Prosperity Network is comprised of like-minded countries, companies, and civil society for all areas of uh, economic collaboration and in all industries. So digital, uh, so energy, um, infrastructure, uh, even money flows, um, education, research, logistics, supply chains it is, is a key part of that. And the key is that this economic prosperity network operate by a set of trust standards. Things that we would call American values here in the U.S. In Europe, they call them democratic values. And probably the best international translation is trust principles. And those are things like accountability, integrity, transparency, reciprocity, respect for rule of law, respect for property of all kinds, respect for sovereignty of nations, respect for the planet, respect for labor. And um, I think this is, uh, uh, this is what the world has been asking for. And, and you know, I've probably had about 60 uh, bilateral meetings uh, uh, over the last year in terms of different countries, economic ministers, foreign ministers, finance ministers. And this really, this really resonates. And they want America to lead. They go, we need America to lead. Keith, how do, you, how do you do that, though, when several of our allies have already formed relationships with China, with Huawei, on 5G? Yeah. Well, there's no doubt that China is a big trading partner, and in a lot of countries, they're number one trading partner. But for these countries, it all comes down to one word, and it's trust. And by the way, you know, coming from uh, the business sector my entire career, um, Trust is the basis of every relationship, business-wise, uh, personal or, or, or otherwise. And when you talk to these uh, uh, government officials, or even when you talk to companies, international companies, it's that issue of trust comes up uh, uh, with China. And I think what has really accelerated this is what's happened in the pandemic, because I think people really understand that this should have never happened. And meanwhile, domestically, the State Department has also been uh, trying to do new significant outreach pertaining to economic security strategy to make sure that the U.S. supply systems, both from technologies, from energy and other sectors, are better protected uh, against economic threats. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, because, you know, one of those uh, core pillars for the economic security strategy is safeguard American assets. So that's... And what does that look like? As people hear that thrown around. So here's, here's what it looks yeah. like. So first of all, it's intellectual property. It's technology. It's supply chains. It's financial systems. And a lot of people don't realize of the 150-some uh, Chinese stocks that are listed on the New York and NASDAQ Stock Exchange, they don't have to do Sarbanes-Oxley, which means go through uh, big scrutiny in terms of audit. And, and they can't be automated. Uh, audited. And for a guy who's taken four companies public, you know, personally, maybe I have a problem with that, but I'm thinking of the shareholders. And because that lack of transparency is not, is not good. You know, the other key assets to safeguard is our education system, uh, our healthcare system, all of those kind of things. Um, and that's why not only are we looking at it from a supply chain standpoint, but we're also looking at in terms of Chinese investment and in our CFIUS process as well. You know, just a final question. I want to come back to this point of face mask diplomacy and the concern that I hear from you, from, that I hear from Democrats, Republicans alike on Capitol Hill about China dangling face masks and PPE 
to U.S. allies. Yeah. And the potential for that happening on U.S. supply chains, yeah. if that is so entangled, that's got to worry you. Yeah. And by the way, I think if you look at this China issue, this is probably the most unifying bipartisan issue uh, ever. I mean, I, uh, it, 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 everybody has a passion for that. And, uh, you know, it's Chinese doctrine. It's not just deception, but it's also seduced with money and reinforced with intimidation and retaliation. Right. I mean, we all saw what happened to the general manager of the Houston Rockets when he just did a seven word tweet. Within 24 hours, one hundred million dollars of sponsorships were dropped by Chinese apparel companies. Now, that that just doesn't happen by accident. That's a playbook because that has to go to the top. And even even the government of China can't move that fast. So I think this is on the minds of our Congress, our executive branch, our judicial branch. Uh, I think it's on the minds of companies. Uh, we could really see that when I hosted Secretary Pompeo out in Silicon Valley uh, for four days. I, I hosted 30, 36 of the top CEOs in my home. And as they went around uh, the room, we had them tell their China story. And they were kind of frightening. But, uh, and we see the same thing in other countries. I did the same thing with a set of 25 German CEOs. You've got to be in a closed-door setting because all these guys are afraid of retaliation. And I think our stance, uh, an important role for America, is there a strength and power in leadership uh, in terms of unity and solidarity. And this is where the Economic Prosperity Network is key because it creates a network of alliance under these trust principles. And this pandemic, you know, is such a horrible thing. But if there's any byproduct out of that, I think it will be, um, it will be, it will set the table for the future with the Economic Prosperity Network. That was Keith Kroc, the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs, uh, speaking to me earlier today from the State Department uh, in an interview, wide-ranging interview about how the State Department is looking to diversify the supply chain from the United States and China and the network of standards that they're trying to implement with allies, particularly in Europe as it relates to 5G. And of course, I had to, had to get in some NBA basketball in there as well. My name is Kevin Cirilli, and I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And coming up later on in the program, we're going to actually check in uh, with the founder and CEO of Cafe Milano, which starts curbside pickup, iconic D.C. restaurant. Franco Nuskese is going to join us uh, live uh, here on uh on Bloomberg Sound On. But first I want to check in, and this was a segment that I've wanted to do for a while with David Chavern. He's the president and CEO of the News Media Alliance. David, are you there? Yes, I am, Kevin. Thanks very much for having me. Anytime, anytime. You know, we've been talking about this in in the Bloomberg newsroom, virtually, of course, uh, about the importance of local news and how how COVID-19 has really just shown a spotlight on the importance of local news, local blogs, local websites, because that's how a lot of people are getting their information right now, these trusted local outlets, whether it's on television, whether it's on radio or in print. Uh, and you are fighting this five-front war, essentially, right now. Tell me about yes. it. Yeah, well, it's an interesting point you made. You know, we had gotten used to what I call the, the nationalization of of news attention, people paying relatively more attention to national and general interest stories than, say, our parents would have. But in this moment, it turns out when you have a real crisis that everybody, the telescope spins around and that people are intensely focused about local. What the, where's the COVID cases? Where do I get tested? You know, what's the shelter-in-place order? And it really shows the importance of a local news ecosystem 
really when you need it the most. And basically, we've been working on two broad things. One, helping the, uh, the industry get through COVID-19 crisis. And this gets into stimulus uh, uh, issues and, and being essential workers and the rest. But we've also been fighting a kind of long-term battle about getting more value back from uh, Google and Facebook and the digital ecosystem to support the business long-term. So I think this is fascinating because especially from a local news media perspective, David Chavern's on the line. He, you've spent uh, something like 30 years in executive strategic and operational roles. You also had a, you were the, you previously at the Chamber of Commerce served uh, as executive vice president and chief operating officer for the, for the Chamber of Commerce from 2007 to 2014. We talk a lot about small town journalism, main street journalism, but who owns those news sources is crucially important. And you just alluded to Google and Facebook in particular and how that information, and unfortunately sometimes misinformation, gets spread on these platforms. What does the new, What are you guys doing to prevent that from happening? And how do we make sure that Silicon Valley isn't tilting the scale in favor of uh, a negative influence? Yeah, it's interesting. People still think about the industry in terms of the print product, you know, the physical yeah. newspaper, which is still a great product, by the way. A lot of people use it, but the vast majority of our audience is digital, and obviously that's increasing all the time. And, uh, you know, my basic message to Silicon Valley has always been, listen, if you have a fake news problem, guess what? We're, we're in the real news business. We're, we're the antidote for that problem. And so we need to have a sustainable uh, business uh, arrangement with you where our content is distributed primarily now through Google and Facebook, and we get very little value back. And that's not a sustainable model. And by the way, as we become more and more digital, it also means that uh, the business becomes harder and harder all the time. So if we, if for the next crisis, not only this crisis, but for the next one, if we want to have a strong local news, local journalism, we're going to need to get value back from the big tech platforms uh, if we hope to sustain ourselves. So, I, so, and you and I have talked about this offline, David Chavern, who is president and CEO of News Media Alliance, which is the news industry's largest trade organization. And, and it's, it's not necessarily, folks, when you think of corporate media, he, what he represents is all of the, the, the small town America's uh, newspapers, uh, digital resources and whatnot. There's legislation that has been making its way on Capitol Hill, bipartisan, mind you, bipartisan yeah. legislation. Give me an update on where that stands. I know it's probably on pause because of COVID, but, but tell me about where that stands. Yeah, what uh, th this bill, which again uh, has Amy as co-sponsors, just a few of them, by the way, Amy Klobuchar, John Kennedy, Mitch McConnell is a co-sponsor, David Cicilline in the House, Doug Collins, you know, very bipartisan. Yeah, very bipartisan. What it would do, yeah, what it would do is would allow the news publishers to collectively to come together and collectively bargain with Google and Facebook for a better deal. They, weirdly, the current antitrust laws protect Google and Facebook from us, weirdly and ironically. And so this is basically would allow us to uh, come together and negotiate as a group to get a better deal. And a better deal is about money, it's about data, it's about algorithms, but uh, you know, to basically have a chance to fight for our future. And, and just a couple more questions here, David. How how what are how much of a threat are foreign 
governments. You know, earlier on in the program, I had the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs at the State Department, Keith Crock, on in, in an exclusive interview. And he was talking about or alluding to the misinformation campaigns from China, for example. And it's been widely reported in the past several weeks about how China has launched their own, uh, the Communist Party of China has launched their own misinformation campaigns on their own social media platforms. How important is it to protect the integrity of local news from these horrific misinformation campaigns? Oh, tremendously. First of all, a lot people are used to thinking about, you know, uh, foreign interference and disinformation as being just about national issues. But what we saw, what we see is that they uh, they dig in and create controversies at a local level. So you need a good local journalism voice to respond. Also, one of the complaints we have, actually, but first of all, Google and Facebook, I complain about them a lot, but they're tremendous distribution systems, but it, it, they don't make it a sustainable way to, to publish news. And, and one of the reasons is they tend to suppress the brands. People see a flood of information through their news feed or uh, you know, th- through a social feed, and where the information comes from gets suppressed. And so people aren't trained to, or, or they've forgotten at some level, uh, how much you have to pay attention to the origin of the content. And again, our, my members' content is an answer for disinformation, but we also need to work hard to make sure people understand where the news is coming from and not just to believe something because it shows up in your news feed. David Chavern, I think that's fascinating, especially that point about how uh, bad actors are actually even penetrating on a local, local level, folks. I mean, that that to me is... That's it, that says it all. David Chavern, he's the president and CEO of the News Media Alliance, giving us an update on the important work that the organization's doing, uh, bipartisan work that they're doing uh, to protect the integrity of local news. Thank you, David. You're welcome back any time. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. I want to pivot now to go back to foreign policy because Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is going to travel to Israel this week. And that means we have to check in with Matt Brooks. He's a Republican strategist and the executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition. Matt, thank you for calling in. How are you, buddy? I'm doing great, Kev. How are you doing? Good. Can't complain. Can't complain. Uh, it's finally warming up a little, you know. <laughs> well, now it's <laughs> now I'm looking out my window, and actually the gust of wind just took out one of my lawn chairs. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Too much information. Enough about me. Uh, but Secretary Pompeo is traveling to Israel. This is, I believe, his first trip abroad since this has uh, happened, since all of this has gone down. Why is it so important that he's traveling to Israel? And what does that show about uh, the importance of, of the U.S.-Israeli alliance? 
Well, first of all, I, I do think it's important that, uh, you know, especially with all the hotspots and all the difficulties around the world, uh, the uh, Secretary of State felt it important enough to travel to Israel both to, uh, I think, congratulate and formally begin to work with the uh, newly elected, uh, uh, newly installed government uh, in Israel. And I think that, you know, this is an, coming in at a very, very important time as, as uh, uh, we do now have a, a government, we have leadership in Israel. Uh, I believe that the president and the secretary of state and prime minister Netanyahu all want to try and get uh, movement on the Trump uh, peace initiative. And I think everybody realizes that, uh, you know, we have a ticking time, we have a ticking clock uh, as it relates to the elections in November. Uh, so we don't really have a lot of opportunity to sort of uh, drag our feet. So I think that uh, the secretary is going over there uh, to to work with the new uh, uh, government and, and to hopefully continue to move uh, the Trump vision for peace in the Middle East forward. So, I mean, you know, it is fascinating how foreign policy obviously is not on pause, but foreign policy and geopolitics has had to adjust, just like businesses and politics and everything in the world has had to recalibrate in wake of COVID-19. Uh, here is Israel with a new government and you know now this peace plan that was rolled out a couple months ago uh, and you're still saying that it could still get worked on uh, even as Israel and Palestine are like the rest of the world on lockdown yeah no it has to be and and Israel's starting to you know they're a little ahead of us in in terms of uh, opening things up uh, they took a much more draconian uh, approach to uh, to mitigating the impacts of, of COVID in, in Israel and, and literally shut everything down uh, very early on. They're now just starting to to uh, loosen things up, get back into the uh, uh, the swing of things, and and uh, uh, we'll see how that goes over there. Uh, but you know they did a remarkable job at limiting the number of uh, uh, COVID cases and COVID fatalities uh, in Israel. Certainly, disproportionately on a on a per capita basis, basis much much better than any other industrialized uh, first world country did. All right, let's pivot back to domestic politics because this everyone politically and conservative blogs and liberal blogs are talking about how the president's really asking some new questions uh, for 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 uh, former President Barack Obama. How is this going to play and shape the, two, the 2020 closing political arguments? I would imagine it's going to be a, a massive uh, issue in the debates. Uh, there's no question. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that uh, uh, I think we're going to try and paint uh, Joe Biden as an extension and a continuation, a third term of uh, of Barack Obama, certainly as it relates to Israel and the foreign policy. That's the case that we're going to make because uh, the sharp contrast between President Trump uh, and Barack Obama as it related to U.S.-Israel relations uh, couldn't be starker. But domestically as well, and the stuff that has now been coming out and the revelations about uh, uh, the involvement of, of senior members of the administration in, in uh, trying to uh, entrap and cover up uh, the, the actions of the FBI in terms of uh, using it as a political tool uh, are just very, very troubling. But, you know, Kevin, at the end of the day, uh, you know, Donald Trump isn't isn't running against Joe Biden. Donald Trump's opponent in this election is the coronavirus. Yeah, no, and, and, so, and much so is Joe Biden's, right? I mean, they're both, in a way, going to have to run against this. This is, without question, going to be a populist election. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. 
Oh, no, I think that's exactly correct. And so the, the real question is going to be, um, you know, who is the best person to lead this country out of this economic crisis and reignite and restart the economic engine? And there's no question after three years of, of unbelievably historic growth uh, and unprecedented uh, job creation yeah. uh, that I think a lot of people are going to look to, to Trump as, as the doer, as the guy who can get things done uh, and bring us out of this. Yeah. And I think that's a good contrast with, with Biden. Matt Brooks, it's always great to catch up with you. Go get yourself a cheesesteak. All right, Matt? Save me a Tony Luke. I know. <laughs> I got them. I got enough Tony Lukes to last me till the end of the year. Tony, my brother Tony, back in Philly, he's South Philly. He sent me a bunch. I was homesick. I said, Tony, I want some cheesesteaks. He said, I got you covered, brother. And now everyone's like, where do I get the cheesesteaks? You know, Matt Brooks, Republican strategist and executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition. Always down for, for a hoagie or a cheesesteak. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Radio. And you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I just got off the phone with my dad because I had to do some prep for uh, this next interview with Franco Nuskese, who's the founder and owner of Cafe Milano. And I said I couldn't interview the iconic Franco the founder and owner of Ca- of the equally as iconic Cafe Milano based in Washington, D.C. in Georgetown. If I didn't know what part of Italy my ancestors are from, Abruzzi, I'm told. And I checked in with my Aunt Adeline as well. We're from Abruzzi off the coast, Franco. Uh, and you've got some big news, buddy. You guys are opening up curbside tonight, aren't you? Uh, yes, we indeed are, uh, Kevin. Okay. Now keep in mind that uh, Abruzzi is the place is where the best chefs are coming from. They say that, you know, being close to the sea and close to the mountain, they are able to put together always uh, a lot of great uh, dishes. I love that. I love that because I am a big fan of it. But I'm from the Amalfi Coast, I wanted to remind you, and our chef is from Tuscany. All right. Well, you know, hey, more Italians the better. Listen, I do have a question. You guys have a new menu curbside. You've tweaked it because I, I was looking at the, the, the notes you sent over to me, and you said you can't have some – you actually changed your, me, your menu for curbside so that if you do order curbside from Cafe Milano, you're still getting the Cafe Milano experience and in, a, in a curbside way. Explain to me what's on the menu. That's right. So what's on the and menu? Just to let you know, I mean the menu – all the dishes on the menu, I would say 85%, 90% of the dishes are the same that we have or that we are offering on the regular menu. But of course, with the curbside, you know, we had to modify because the most important thing is for us is to be able to deliver quality. And uh, we know that we are facing the challenge of the picking up, you know, we don't know how long the 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 the, the, the client is going to take to to eat uh, to eat the food. So that plays a very big role. Sometimes we have to give it to a driver. The driver, we don't know how, how far he's going to take it. So it's very important that we make some small adjustment to make sure that our food can travel. You know, our the Italian food. Our menu, our concept, most of the menu doesn't really travel well. So we had to just adjust it 
and make sure that we will pick with the, with the chef that we would pick dishes that it was they would stay well that would travel well. I love that. I love that because that just speaks to to how you're you're taking you know even pride in in curbside and and you're not just going to get you know mush when you order curbside from Milano. You're going to get the full Milano experience in a curbside box. I love that. Rekunus Kese is on the line. He's the uh, he's uh, the uh, CEO and owner of uh, Cafe Milano, which is an iconic iconic DC restaurant. I actually. At your anniversary party, Franco, I met Michael Jordan. I shook Michael Jordan's hand right there at Cafe Milano. I'll never forget that. Yeah. But I heard, I heard that you're that you're having. Let me ask you how has how has this shutdown impacted your business, Franco? Well, you know the biggest issue. You know, first of all, you know it is the the busiest season of the year for us between the months of March, the middle of March. And the middle of June is the, those three months are pretty much the best quarters that we have here, due to the fact that we have a lot of events, a lot of delegation coming from out of town, and of course a lot of graduation for the months of May. But the biggest issue it's right now it's the uncertainty that we don't know when we're going to be able to open, we don't know what the restriction they're going to be, how will be the public react. And uh, what happens if there's going to be some new cases or infection uh, right after we open? You know, we will be doing everything imaginable uh, to, to make Cafe Milano a safe place and no matter what, at what cost. Uh, this is no longer a story of trying to save money uh, during this difficult time. For me, this is really uh, that I will spend most of the time to make sure that the people are very, very happy and most of all, safe. Franco, Franco, I got to ask this difficult question. If this keeps going on, how much longer can Cafe Milano survive before it has to make a difficult decision of shutting down? Uh, no, no, this is, a, it, it is an important question, a very, very important, very interesting question. Now, the thing is this, that we will, we will see how long it's going to take for the mayor to decide. And I understand that she does, uh, she needs to look after, she safe safest uh, science and safest first. You know, we could go, we will see if it's going to take another month. It might take a couple a couple months. And the fact, Kevin, that even if we're going to open in June or let's say the first week in July, that really doesn't really mean much. We have to prepare ourselves for at least six months to have 50% of our business. And we will do the best to, uh, to keep it. And... Um, it's not going to be easy. It's going to take a lot of negotiation, you know, with uh, the landlord, for example. You know, we just have to make sure that uh, we are all having a, a, a long vision because that's the only way that we can succeed. We've been here 27 years, as you know, and uh, we, we will definitely try and give the best that we can. But we just have to work together. And after all, I don't think there will be too many banks or investors giving money to restaurants in the next few years. So you're telling me that th yes. you're, you're telling me there's a possibility that Cafe Milano might have to shut down if this if, if there's no reopenings in the next couple of months. Well, I that that could be a possibility, but we don't know. We don't know. Wow. We hope that, that that's not the case, 
But at the end of the day, we want to be able to protect also the, our employees and our future employees. Let me ask it's you. not going to happen in two months from now. At least if it's two months later, we want to still want to be here and have a job for them. Franco, have you, you, been able to get, have you been able to get PPP? Have you been applied? What have you heard on PPP? Yes, we have applied and we are very close to here. Yes, of course, it took also that took long, long time, uh, Kevin, because the first time, as you all know, they ran out of money. I'm assuming there were so many applications. But uh, the bank has informed us that, that we, will, we should hear it very, very shortly. But the PP loan, the PP loan concept um, is a very good only in theory. Um, uh, under these current guidelines and conditions, it doesn't work for every important group like the restaurant. I have to tell you, to yeah. take the adventure today, we will have to pay staff while staying at home, which is a waste of the government money. And right. it doesn't put the restaurant in any better shape to face the future. Listen, I want to ask you one more question. We've got 60 seconds left. But, yes. what are, you know, you're someone who is, is iconic to Georgetown. Your restaurant has hosted everyone. I mean, I don't even want to go through the names. Everyone. Let me ask you, what are you drawing on now as your compass to navigate through this difficult time, Franco? Well, you know, uh, again, it's a great question. I have to say he's really focusing on not only what we can do now and pay attention on a daily basis, what we can, cannot do, who we can approach, and again, trying to keep always that, that, that style, that reputation. But at the same time, Looking at, in the long run, three months from now, four months from now, six months from now, because this is something that not only myself, we all have to face that stage. And just we just can't think about in the next couple of months. The idea is to see six months from now. The world has changed. When we're going to come back, it's not going to be 100%. We hope that is the 50%. Yeah. And here in some state, it could be the 25%. Yeah. But in that case, we really need to right. focus how we're going to deal on the long run. Franco Nuskese, founder and CEO of the Iconic Cafe Milano, open for curbside now. Thank you, brother, for keeping me focused on the future. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.